What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host Iris and I'm here with my older brother. Elvis Wesley. That's pretty good. Thank you very much. Today we're discussing, (laughs) today we're, can you guess? We're discussing a movie from 2022, Academy Award nominated Best Picture, Elvis. The movie that almost killed Tom Hanks. This is the one where he's tooling around Australia in Queensland making this Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie and he gets struck down by this unknown disease. This mysterious international virus also known as COVID-19. Yep. Uh, he, he and Rita Wilson were like all holed up and they were like, we're okay. They're, we're okay, we're alive. But they said it was really rough because there was no protocols in place. There there was no plan. Hospitals were overwhelmed and people were on ventilators and stuff. I remember this. Do they shut down? Yes. And uh, <laughs> that kind of makes sense given that the premiere for Elvis was what? Summer 2022 and COVID struck two years prior, more than two years prior. Then again... Maybe Baz Luhrmann requires a little bit more time in the editing room than some other directors. His films are often hyper-stylized, which requires some post-work. Um, <laughs> That's the nicest way anyone's ever said to, that. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, so um, the timeline makes sense as well, that they were shooting in Australia, considering Boz is Australian. He's an Aussie. He's a Bozzy. Uh What is your favorite Elvis song? Um, that's a tough call. It's probably something from the Lilo and Stitch soundtrack. I know that Elvis did a massive show in Hawaii that's remembered like 50 years later. This was the 1 billion plus view first ever live what, was stream. Was it? Was the satellite show that, that Colonel Parker show, uh, set up, was that the Hawaii show? All I know is that when they did Lilo and Stitch and they needed the soundtrack, it's mostly Elvis songs. Yeah, he also did some Hawaiian or at least beach and surf themed movies. I'm officially choosing You're the Devil in Disguise. Hmm. So we grew up in a house where 1950s music was on constantly. It was supplemented somewhat with Dad's... um, Al Green and the Motown sound. Yeah, yeah, Motown. Despite music kind of being on constantly, I felt like it was particularly devoid of major musical acts, uh, namely Elvis and the Beatles. Neither Mom nor Dad really cared either for those hugely influential artists. Yeah, it bled through in Mom's 60s, uh, oldies but goodies, the British Invasion stuff. We got a lot of it. It was just difficult for us to discern. You know, we weren't there personally for the wave that comes where it's all of a sudden it's a huge influx of British music. And Elvis is a cultural force, right? And it's kind of Elvis or nothing. Like, I feel like he typified a kind of music for the entire South forever. And so, yeah, the sort of legendary figures that they make Cirque du Soleil shows out of now were lost on us, I think, until like Michael Jackson. (laughs) Right, because there's Beatles Love. Well, Michael Jackson's one, which I haven't seen yet. I really want to. Maybe I'll see that in June. Does Elvis have a Cirque du Soleil? He definitely did, but I don't think it lasted very long. Are you kidding? Uh, Vegas and Elvis and Cirque du Soleil? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, that does make a lot of sense. In a way, Elvis jibed more with Dad's style of music. The Motown stuff came directly from blues, as is most mainstream rock is influenced by blues. But Dad was very particular. Yeah, Elvis was a bit more country tinged. The mix of gospel and blues and country and those three really being major, major influences and the the, the types of music that he carried a love for throughout his career. I think my favorite Elvis song is Love Me Tender. Love me tender. <laughs> Love me too. Um, I'm learning to play it on the piano and it's it's kind of fun. But all I'm saying is that I approached this from a outsider's perspective. I wasn't, I'm not Elvis number one fan. I have been to Graceland, but this was all new to me. Yep. Elvis's story was all new to me. An opportunity for a fresh, unfettered look at a movie that, no, it doesn't. It really doesn't strive to be accurate kind of at all. As Lerman says, this wasn't so much a biopic as it was a superhero movie. Really? Yep. I mean, uh, how many times does he lift up the cape? Oh, I, I think he actually did that. <laughs> but it was... <laughs> so Kelly and I watched this movie in the theaters in VIP where we're all comfy and reclined. And it's kind of necessary because it's kind of an assault on the senses. And yes. revisiting it, I was exhausted. It took me three days, Iris style, to cover this movie again because I haven't seen it in several months. And I realized that almost any two-minute part of this movie pulled out would make a trailer. They would all like suggest mm. different kinds of movies, but it's never yeah. not a visual assault. The term I came up with was, I felt elviscerated. Wow. It's a lot. <laughs> and this was kind of not like in terms of uh, hyper-stylization, but this was Baz Luhrmann a little bit restrained. There were no manic little people. There were no green fairies. <laughs> it was like Baz Luhrmann trying to be Oliver Stone for the doors. They were... <laughs> Which we still have to review. There were definitely moments, though, where people were doing the wide mouth head thrown back thing, which oh, yeah. when, when it did. Well, that, that's because they were they were enraptured. They were like feeling the music, man. But when during that scene where they're juxtaposing the like back house, the barn speakeasy band thing yeah. where homegirl was getting all up on that guy oh right right and so and and elvis is also go like toggling between the two like he's peeking through the slats in the wood and then he's running over and he's joining the the rapture service during that whole scene i was thinking about you because you make that puppet face with the, the wide mouth puppet face where you go ah and you throw your head back and how <laughs> that happens in like every Boslerman movie including gatsby moulin rouge uh, there was some david lynch in there for sure it was probably inappropriate anyway, but I really, I, like, I feared for that kid's mental health when he ran into that tent, like that revival tent or whatever, because they were into it, man. And you can see that kid either getting trampled or getting his clothes torn off him or something. Like, I'm not suggesting that they were degenerates or anything, but there's a kinship between feeling the Holy Spirit and also this weird erotic rapture thing that's happening on it like the the people in the church who are glorying in god and is taking possession of their soul and their loins is like the same thing as the women screaming <laughs> their heads off at the fair when elvis starts gyrating mm -hmm, that naughty feeling that they're not so sure they're supposed to like um, yeah i feared for that kid when he ran into the tent with his little captain marvel jr lightning bolt on his chest it's it's worship for whatever whoever's in front of you so I have a question, an honest question that's not intended to be a criticism. I'm genuinely curious. Does Boz Lerman's stylized approach to filmmaking suggest insecurity? Um, 
I've wondered about this. I've wondered if he were forced to make an independent drama, if he could do it. Because you could see that with hyperstyle, without the hyperstylization, Romeo and Juliet might have been flat and Moulin Rouge wouldn't have been anything if you take away the style from that movie. But he is focusing more. It's, it's giving him his outlet something that's mythological in a way. Elvis is probably the perfect Baz Luhrmann uh, subject for a movie. Glittery, glitzy. And when he focuses on these things, on this sort of lavish, otherworldly, like ultra-rich, inaccessible kind of thing, it is what we view as romantically, you know, egregious and music video-like. When in reality, Elvis's life was pretty sad and he was on stage and everything and he was a a big personality, but he was also mired in drugs. And it was eventually kind of the point where he was, he's talking and he's this drawl, he's mumbling. You can't really understand what he's saying. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's too much. And uh, I felt like drunk and sick and Elvis-like throughout the course of this movie because it's a lot. Uh, it, can Wes Anderson make a normal, good movie without it being like cartoon and cotton balls? I'm not sure. It's hmm. just, it's his thing. And this is Baz Luhrmann's thing. It's Baz's bag. But I am suspicious. When you look at Romeo and Juliet, it delivers a gut punch because the source material is timeless. There's a reason that it's like immortal. And so I felt like the form really highlighted or elevated the function of Romeo and Juliet. I was never really a fan of Moulin Rouge. I think it was a bit before my time. This one does feel a little bit, just a little bit like it's, not that it sacrifices function for its form but i think you have to break through the form which is an assault to get to the functioning story of elvis's to your point kind of very tragic life short life austin butler for the course of elvis had went from no prosthetics to super heavy prosthetics and and i'm pretty sure that was real sweat i mean i know you can't sweat through prosthetics but it's like raining down out of his (laughs) hair or whatever because he looked tore up he really did. And I'm sure those full leather jumpsuits weren't that breathable. It's about form over function. Although I don't feel like that characterizes Austin Butler's performance. I think it was a little bit heavy on the smoldering side. Like he, like it was just chock full of smoldery looks and these like looking through the eyelashes, Timothy Chalamet type looks. Yeah, he was definitely smoldering, and they overdid the makeup for Elvis in a big way, like the the kid with the eyeliner and uh, get a haircut, hippie, you know, and buttercup. (laughs) The girly makeup, the wiggles. Apparently, Elvis, like Austin Butler, was blonde, is naturally blonde. Austin Butler's blonde, and Elvis was blonde. And no. yeah, it's really weird when you get to like ultra famous personages, you know, that that Michael Jackson's nephew is going to play Michael Jackson in like a full scale biopic now. And that's good. Wait, you, need, what? you need close Jackson jeans. And there are definite performers, not that Michael Jackson looks anything like his natural jeans or whatever, but there are lots of impersonators and things. But we know what Elvis looks like. This is like um straight out of Compton where I was like, dude, where did they find that kid to play Ice Cube? Right. He came from Ice Cube. <laughs> I but, was like, that's the best casting ever. Yep. The point being that that he wore makeup, but it wasn't like excessive, like Baz Luhrmann style uh, eyeliner and stuff. He had Elvis wore mascara and some other makeup maybe on his eyebrows because his blonde eyelashes and stuff looked weird 
with his jet black Elvis hair, which was all uh, modeled on Captain Marvel Jr., who was renamed to Shazam. Also a movie this year. But no relation to the Shazam genie movie from the 80s that people think it exists that really doesn't? Right. There can't be any relation because that's not a real movie. It's Kazam with Shaquille O'Neal. So according to HMV.com, Elvis dyed his hair a shade known as mink brown. Okay. Well, it reads as jet black as evidenced by the fact that the new cartoon in which he plays a secret agent, Agent Elvis, he has jet black hair. Hmm. His young Elvis hair looked great, but his old Elvis hair looked like a toupee. Shaggy, like kind of Steven Seagalish. It was kind of swirly. <laughs> yeah, he wore a bunch of different, like, a whole bunch of different wigs and ridiculous costumes, which I guess is par for the course for Baz Luhrmann. He wore like 90 different outfits. Wow. And they were like for the for the the whole cast, there were thousands. So I wanted Brian to join us for this because he loved this movie and I think watches it like re, has already rewatched it a couple of times. Brian told me that Austin Butler had a history of being like compared to Elvis. And then when this role potential role came onto his his radar he like trained for it like he had it and was like all elvisified when he went in for the audition and like blew everybody away it reads like he put a ton of work into this and and in that regard i'm happy that there was this infrastructure to support that like with the costuming and they shoot him away they dramatize him in a way that really enhances his elvisness well so jack nicholson contacted Heath Ledger and said, be careful with that Joker thing. Like, don't let it carry you away or whatever. And I think part of that, the exhaustion from that movie and stuff, coupled with uh, some prescription medications, was the undoing for Heath Ledger, who was pretty methody, I think, for that movie. And Austin Butler, he recorded an audition. His girlfriend said, oh, you kind of sound like him. You should audition when he was uh, singing in the car. And he did a tape. And apparently... He felt like his tape was an impression or like cheesy. And so he didn't want to send it in. And then he had some dream where his mom died again because his mom died. They lost their mothers at the same age of like 23. So he did a rendition of Elvis's song, The Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers, Elvis's cover of it, where he like lost his S and like freaked out on tape. This like screaming emotional breakdown kind of thing, all Elvis style where he was enraptured. And Baz Luhrmann was like, whoa, and met him on the strength of that and then kind of eventually gave him the part. And then now he was just criticized for being on the Grammys or one of those shows, award show, where he can't drop the accent. And people are like, he still sounds like Elvis. And he's like, I'm working on it. I'm going to drop it. And apparently, like, it really took its toll. They shot and they were on extended hiatus for COVID. And then they came back and shot. So it was like 18 months of Elvis for him or like or maybe even longer. And so he was asking people, like, how do I get out of this? And Tom Hanks is like, read Mm. books, get in another film as soon as you can. That has nothing to do with Elvis. And he's still trying to shake it. So I hope he will be okay because in the course of two hours and 40 minutes or however long this, to me, feeling incredibly long movie was, I felt like I was Elvis and kind of dying. So Mm. I hope Austin Butler will be okay. Yeah. I mean, he's only 31. I think that he, because of his Academy Award nomination and because of his amazing Star is Born type performance, that he will be afforded every opportunity or is is currently being already being afforded every opportunity. Yeah. You mean Academy Award nominated performance? 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure he has a chance. I think it's Brandon's year. But uh, talk about really emulating Elvis as much as possible. Last I heard, he was dating Cindy Crawford's daughter, who's like 10 years younger than him. Really? And that only applies because although this movie tried to play it, like Priscilla and Elvis were of comparable ages when he met her in Germany, no. He was 23, she was 14. What? Dude, Elvis has been dead for what, 45 years or something? Priscilla Presley's still kicking around. Unfortunately, she lost her daughter, R.I.P. Lisa Marie. But she's still around because she was so incredibly young when she met Elvis in the 50s. Wow. No way. I don't know. That's me making a joke. I don't know how Austin Butler is called. He seems fine. He's a young kid. He's resilient. Um, it just seems like this was a heavy role that, to your point, he threw himself in wholeheartedly. He really did. And I think he, whether it sounds like the award might go to Brendan Fraser, Frazier, <laughs> Fraser. Who, who we've discussed at length in our review on The Whale. But I think that... This is definitely a worthy nomination, like definitely on par with other winning musical performances, namely Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody. But we've talked a lot about Elvis and as presented by Austin Butler, but we haven't talked at all about the main character, our narrator, played by Tom Hanks, the Colonel Tom Parker. (laughs) Did you know that this is Tom Hanks's second Elvis movie? In what other movie did a Tom Hanks character meet an Elvis? Oh, <laughs> easy. <laughs> Forrest Gump. He Forrest Gump taught Elvis his moves. Yep. I think Tom Hanks literally went from Colonel Tom Parker to a man called Otto. And Tom Hanks is good because he's Tom Hanks, dude. And when he strays too far from that, everybody calls him out. Is like was the Tom Hanks Colonel Tom Parker voice the equivalent of the Tom Hanks Da Vinci Code hair? (laughs) But still, he kind of played Tom (laughs) Hanks just with different hair and a Mickey Mouse watch. But I'm talking like Cloud (laughs) Atlas, where he plays like six different characters and he's like a cackling old man and stuff and like a gangster type dude. Hmm. Range wise, I'm not sure that that is his strength. People make me out to be the villain of this here piece. And he's, it's weird in a Hannibal Lecter kind of way. But Tom Parker apparently spoke with such a convincing Southern accent that nobody knew. Elvis calls him out on stage in this movie and says, I don't think he's really from here. I think he's from overseas or something. But Elvis never knew that. Nobody knew that until close to his death, like way after Elvis was gone. Then they were like, this Tom Parker guy apparently is like a Dutch immigrant who made up an American name and joined the army or something like Edgar Allan Poe style. If he ever joined the army, if he was ever a colonel. There are no recordings of Abraham Lincoln's voice. And by the the counts that are written, they're like he had this high pitched, nasally, almost annoying kind of screechy voice. And that's a little bit what Daniel Day-Lewis put on. But Tom Hanks is choosing to change Colonel Parker's voice for the sake of his sort of, I don't know, foreignness, his strangeness sounding like something you can sink your teeth into for a character. But I don't think he needed to. I think he could have just been (laughs) Tom Hanks trying to be the bad guy. Hmm. So it's super cartoony to me. And in the same, I mean, I don't think that Otto was anything necessarily special either, but it's Tom Hanks really trying to stretch, to flex his power and his muscles. But we love him and forgive him because he's Tom Hanks. A curious performance by Tom Hanks, a little bit distracting, but maybe it enhances the Colonel Tom Parker character. 
I mean, I'm I'm still questioning, is he the villain? I guess we know he is, but I feel a little bit like the snow job worked on me because I believe him when he says, you and I are one. And I believe him when he says, we need each other in this weird codependent thing that they had going on. As villains go, he was the Svengali spice, like the ultra manager who like uh, organizes all the things behind the scenes, possibly to the detriment of, of his artist. For example, it was true. Elvis never toured abroad ever because Tom Parker was an illegal alien and he couldn't go with him and thus couldn't maintain this vice-like grip, this control that he had over Elvis. So he kept him uh, local. He didn't really have a choice when Elvis went into the army. That was kind of to avoid supposedly this all this bad press that he got in multiple arrests for indecency and and all this stuff or at least charges of obscenity <laughs> which seem yeah. so weird now it's like the end of the so world crazy. when it's happening in the movie the end of the world and it seems so like quaint and cute tame now. yeah right exactly um but he did the thing where he signed him up for this contract or whatever, took a fantastic amount. They were like, no, like legally, like ruling later on, they were like, he has no claim to the Elvis Presley estate whatsoever, which he was trying to get. Supposedly, he was hustling people in the crowd at Elvis's funeral, trying to like set up some kind of book rights or something like that. Uh, took a oh crazy gosh. amount of money. And in a way, part of Elvis's failure to reach our ears as kids and be the worldwide phenomenon. I mean, Hawaii doesn't really count. The Beatles were able to expand, really expand their sound to shift, to evolve over time. I think Elvis was kind of Elvis and he had an appreciable career about the same length as the Beatles, maybe even longer, but kind of stayed in the one local sound and, and, and area of his expertise, which is what people remember. Like, you know, people like, sounds like Elvis, you know exactly what that is. So in that way, mm. I think Tom Parker's the bad guy because he really held Elvis down and never gave him really autonomy. He wasn't involved creatively necessarily. He just stunted the poor dude who is a musical legend in a very specific Elvis labeled niche. He was pretty contained or he was pretty under the thumb of Colonel Tom Parker by design. It's just crazy to think that he that Elvis was suppressed in any way because he is a global phenomenon and he changed the face of music forever. And he's he's still ubiquitous and everyone knows who he is. But to think by orders of magnitude how much bigger he could have been is insane to think about. Yeah, absolutely. He is he is still 50 years plus after his death among the highest paid dead celebrities. 2018, specifically, he was ranked number two. Who was he ranked number two behind, do you figure? Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, his former son-in-law. That's weird, right? <laughs> that is weird. Do you think there was actual, like there was a romantic love relationship between Michael Jackson and Lisa Marie Presley? Unfortunately not. Um, there are parallels there. The dying young, uh, getting ensconced in drugs, kind of chasing the persona that they, their public persona. Elvis was, you know, he's Elvis Presley and I would book him for a hundred years. And then they're like, oh yeah, let's do that. But he was meant to live up to something that he was physically incapable of doing. 
When Michael Jackson died, he was on the cusp of 50 concerts in London. Wow. And so weak and frail that they were propping him up with drugs weekend at Bernie style. It's really sad. Oh. And so so I don't I do think it was manufactured on some level. They were celebrities who, who, you know, kind of thrust into this spotlight that they didn't really know how to navigate. I mean, Michael Jackson was a consummate performer and a professional or whatever, but he was also a hapless child kind of adrift mm-hmm. like Lisa Marie. I don't know, man. You get in, you get these young kids uh, either through nepotism or who are just insanely talented and charismatic in their own rights. And then you're like, be that person forever for money. And you have teams of people around you and stuff. And you're forever chasing that persona, that level of fame, that character. I mean, Elvis's Austin Butler's efforts aside, Elvis didn't feel like a real person. In this movie, he might as well have been the cartoon agent Elvis. I think there's a weird, toxic matchmaking thing that happens with artist types like sanguine type personalities and then narcissists like Colonel Tom Parker. And they kind of need each other and they kind of work well until it becomes, in the instances that you just referenced, fatal. It's really tragic. Yeah. Or are we talking about a narrative construct of these types of biopics? Are these similarities just heightened because of a narrative structure that these types of movies follow? Yes. Specifically, these narratives are really heightened stylistically, acoustically, sonically. I mean, Elvis, There, there's an Elvis song. I don't think it goes 15 seconds without an Elvis. That's not, that's not true. But it does feel like <laughs> the montages are 15 minutes, all of which are interspersed with Elvis songs nonstop Moulin Rouge style. It's romanticized. This is our Mm. fascination with people. It's always about death and measuring ourselves. Again, do we win? Do I win being considerably older than Elvis or John Lennon? But do do I win for for having survived longer than they did, having nowhere near the trajectory they did or the the wealth? Mm. Right. It's It's the idea, like, is it better to burn out bright than slow and sadly? A literal quote from Kurt Cobain's suicide note. And I've I've really? outlived him by nearly 20 years. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of the assault that is known as Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. But the time has come for your ultimate rating. We are reviewing this movie, it must be said, because Elvis was officially nominated for Best Picture. I was surprised when Kelly Ray said she wanted, you want to see Elvis? Because we were looking for movies to go see. Sure. So we went and saw it in the theater. And then I kind of forgot about it or whatever. And everyone was like talking about Austin Butler. And I'm like, right, but Brendan Fraser... Like, what are we going to do? And then it was nominated for Best Picture? Okay. So I tried to watch it again. It was much harder to watch. I don't know what it was, man. I'm, I'm exhausted for personal reasons and stuff. But Elvis was a slog to get through the second time around. It's like, by then, it was like bloated, like later Elvis, who's all like rhinestones and, and, and sparkling lights. And I don't know, man. That said, that performance, that final performance where they bounce back and forth between actual, they show like an extended clip of real Elvis. That dude sang his heart out in that recording. And it's like heart wrenching and stuff. That's a tremendous performance for a dude who's just about to die. So Mm. I can see the skill, the dedication, the talent. I, I wouldn't have wanted this to be Tom Hanks's final film. I can't hate it. But it really didn't rock my radar much. Like, technically speaking, for the kind of movie that Elvis deserves, this is probably just right, maybe. Otherwise, it's kind of sad. And this is his legacy. And it's what we know Elvis for, the showmanship. And the fact that in a weird Justin Bieber way, as much as his fame precedes him, he is actually kind of a good performer. 
<laughs> and so for that reason, this movie works for me. Tom Hanks needing to be a part of this movie brought it down a little bit, a lot of bit. But I thought that it was a Baz Luhrmann movie. It was fine, I guess. It's maybe my favorite Baz Luhrmann movie. Uh, I'll give it a... I'll give it a... Right. I never let Elvis in until seeing Elvis. So, like, all my life, never let Elvis in. Even watching this movie the first time didn't really let it in like I had you kind of have to keep your guard up because this is such an onslaught but I think if you take the time and you let it in then it's pretty effective but ultimately it's sad which just makes it kind of like it's like another reason to have a defense up against this movie there's so much glamour and glitz you know masking what is essentially a tragedy I don't know it did deliver in the end and um worthy of a good And that's our discussion on Elvis, a movie from 2022, available on HBO Max. You saw this movie, so let us know what you think about it, 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Hit us up. If you enjoyed this discussion and many of the others that we referenced, check out 200 plus more at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. And thank you very much. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. No more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50 year old white guys. Electric acid. Electric acid.